0: There's this riddle that's been around for many years, and it goes something like this. A father and a son are in a car accident. They're both taken to the hospital. The father is pronounced dead on arrival. The son is seriously injured, but has a weak pulse. He needs an operation immediately. The surgeon scrubs for the operation, but as the boy is whisked into the emergency room, the surgeon says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. How is this possible? His father died in the car crash. The answer is simple. The surgeon is the boy's mother. Now, maybe you've heard this riddle before, and not everyone gets stuck on it, but many do. And it points to a tendency we all have to rely on imperfect shortcuts when we make judgments. Today, we'll look at this tendency and how it helps us quickly organize the world, but how it can also lead to important errors. I'm Katie Milkman, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show about the subtle forces that can push you in one direction or another when you're trying to make a decision, often without you even realizing it. We bring you high-stakes stories that illustrate these hidden forces that can shift decisions, and then we dive into the science behind our occasionally irrational behavior. Finally, we try to give you some tools to fight back against behavioral traps. And it's all to help you avoid costly mistakes.
1: Going into this modeling industry was, was strange and new and really fun at times. You know, doing shoots where they'd take you know, up to five hours to do your hair and makeup. Honestly, all the different looks, the different styles, the different hair, the different clothes, the makeup, and the team and stuff. It was, it was like a whole new world. It was, it was really fun.
0: This is Sophie. She's describing her experience as a model on a reality TV show in Britain.
1: So I was approached by the BBC when they were looking for some models. um, And that's how I got to know about the program. It takes on the same format as the very well-known series, America's Next Top Model. So a group of girls all competing for a modeling contract. So there were challenges in lots of different ways that would, I think, reflect what life would be like as a working model.
0: The formula for the show was typical. The contestants lived together during production.
1: Yeah, the penthouse that we lived in was really beautiful. It's over in a really smart part of London called Chelsea. I mean, it overlooked the river, and it was just absolutely stunning. Loads of bedrooms. I can't even remember how many bedrooms there were in there. It was really modern and contemporary and beautiful. It's a really amazing place to spend time. It's a funny thing to, to do, to be taken out of your life and your world and put into a very contained environment with a group of other women that you're actually competing against. We were very removed from life. Like, we weren't allowed to watch the news or watch television or check in with our friends and families. We were very much in this little bubble. Some of the challenges
0: they filmed for the show were awkward.
1: So we were taken to a lingerie shop and we selected some underwear um, and we had to put this on and go into the store window and just act like we were almost like a mannequin, just stand or sit or pose in the window. We had people staring in the window at us, we had people taking pictures, we had people uh, laughing, crossing the road, falling over. I mean, you name it. I mean, we're British, for God's sake. It's, you know, we're not good at that kind of thing in the best of times. It was hilarious, really, but we had to keep a straight face and like act all professional. The show's
0: reach also meant an enormous number of people were seeing Sophie's photos.
1: There was a, a moment where one of our photo shoots was put up in Piccadilly Circus, which is the equivalent of our like Times Square, up in lights, you know, the flashing images of us uh, modeling. It's mad because I live in London and I go down that street, you know, so regularly. And so to see myself up there was amazing.
0: <laughs> it was a positive experience overall, though Sophie didn't win the competition. She placed second, but the publicity was still a boon for her career.
1: After that, I got approached by a handful of production companies and channels over here in the UK who just said, look, we we thought you were great on TV. Have you ever thought about presenting? And I obviously hadn't. So I just said, yes, let's let's give that a go.
0: Sophie turned out to be a natural on-air talent. She went on to host several TV shows and the work has taken her all over the world.
1: I really, I absolutely love it, it's an, it's, it's an amazing job and I get to do lots of different things so I make documentaries for the unreported world where we go and we make programmes all around the world about issues that don't get mainstream attention so I was recently in um, Australia and we were flying over it for about five hours to get to the centre of the outback to go and make this programme and as we landed the sun was going down and you could see airs rock and you could see the kangaroos jumping through the scene and it was, you know, you just got to pinch yourself because that's... That's like once in a lifetime being able to see those sort of things.
0: And the opportunities kept coming.
1: There was one pivotal moment really in my career where I'd gone from making documentaries here or there to actually being invited to screen test for the coverage of the biggest sporting event in the world, basically, the Olympics and Paralympics. Sophie's screen test went really well. She got the job and we flew out to Rio to cover this unbelievable event. And I was out in Rio for 11 days and we were broadcasting live for four hours every single day. So it was proper in the deep end. And I was terrified because it was live TV and I'd never done anything live before. And, you know, you hear this countdown in your ear of five, four, three, two, and then you're live. And that feeling of being broadcast live and you're you're live to an audience of millions. I can't tell you how intimidating but exhilarating it's most amazing feeling. Sophie went
0: from a contestant on a reality TV show to a broadcaster with an audience in the millions. Success seemed to come easily. I'm going to pause here. Assuming you don't know Sophie I want you to take a minute and think about how you've been picturing her in your mind. Do you imagine that she's short or tall? Or maybe average height? Does she have curly hair or straight hair? Brown or red hair? Maybe she's a blonde.
1: Hi, my name's Sophie Morgan. I'm paralyzed from the chest down and I use a wheelchair.
0: Okay, be honest. Did you picture Sophie in a wheelchair? Probably not you're like most people, a wheelchair hasn't figured prominently in your encounters with models or TV show hosts or sportscasters. It wasn't top of mind when you were building up an idea of Sophie. That image that you had before we revealed her disability was likely based on a quick and subconscious recollection of your prior experiences of models or TV presenters or the general population. We'll get into this more in a bit, but first let's get to know Sophie beyond her TV resume. Sophie was injured in an accident when she was 18. She was at a party with friends, celebrating the results of final exams.
1: We left the party uh, at about 4 a.m., it must have been, and it was very dark. We were in rural Scotland and very little light around um, and drove down this very country lane. And we were listening to music really, really loud, like really loud. And I was speeding like a crazy person I'd only had my license for about six months or something I was a very inexperienced driver and I had yet yeah, four passengers all of whom were really good friends one of which was my boyfriend and at one point I I turned to him and I said where's that really sharp corner and when I turned back around to face the road there we were upon the sharp corner and I just spun the wheel very very quickly to try and take that corner and just misjudged it and lost control of the car and then it flipped into the field and in that flipping and crashing, I had damaged pretty much all of my face. Um, so my skull was broken open, my j- jaw was broken, my cheek was crushed up, and uh, my nose was completely gone. That was that was smashed to pieces. You know, there was a moment when I was being flown down from Scotland to go and f- be in a hospital in London, and I remember that being an, on in the air, suddenly becoming kind of conscious that I was suddenly in the air, which was bizarre, and then they told my mom and dad that I hadn't hadn't really got a chance of living.
0: Sophie obviously beat those odds and survived, but she had sustained a spinal cord injury and was paralyzed from the chest down. Remember how I asked you to picture Sophie before you knew she was paralyzed? Now I want you to hear about how people often saw her after the accident.
1: You know, I was an 18-year-old girl. Going from, you know, just a normal young girl to a disabled person was extraordinarily weird (laughs) to be considered. Like I remember going to university after I had recovered from my injury and being someone referring to me as the disabled girl it was just like a big slap in the face and and struggling with my identity with with relationships with boys and you know with myself and understanding you know even little things like how do I dress myself what do I wear like how do I, what's my image now that, that was really difficult really really difficult Uh, I had a place at art school for that year and when I recovered from my injuries, I went to the college and I said, look, I've had a bit of a change of plan. I was going to be coming here anyway, but now I'm coming in a wheelchair and they literally, they just looked at me like I was a crazy person. And they said, there's no way you can do the course as a, as a wheelchair user. It's just not adapted for you. And I couldn't believe it. This is my first example of, of discrimination. I'd, I'd never had experienced anything like that before. And I remember talking to my mom. I said, like, you know, what am I going to do? I want to go to school. I want to go to study art. How do I, how am I going to do this? She said, right, we're just going to have to, we're going to have to get a lawyer. We're going to have to get, you know, we're going to have to fight this. And that's what we did. And we fought it. And I have to say, it's been a fight ever since. It's not a fight that I still I'm fighting, you know, the the world around me is not adapted to wheelchair users. And so it's an ongoing battle.
0: That battle is against many things, but it's often against stereotypes. Those mental shortcuts we all use when we try to categorize the world around us. Before you knew Sophie was paralyzed, you probably imagined a stereotypical model. Tall, thin, young, If I'd presented Sophie first as a person with a disability, you likely would have had a very different image in your mind.
1: There's two types of disabled people in the public eye. There's the benefit scrounger who doesn't do anything and has a disability that defines them and is more of a taker than a giver. And then there's this other side that we've got where you're seeing Paralympic superheroes of disabled people, who people who overcome their disability and go and do amazing things. And there's a danger there because actually there's a lot of us in the middle who are just normal people um, living normal lives, doing you know normal things with their disabilities.
0: Sophie thinks there's a simple reason why these stereotypes exist.
1: There aren't enough disabled people in these industries. So there aren't models with disabilities. There aren't television presenters in wheelchairs. There aren't these things. I mean, I can say hands down I'm one of the only television presenters in the world with a visible disability. I mean, it's extraordinary. And yes, these stereotypes, they're just part of our psyche. They're part of who we are. You know, as a television presenter and somebody in the public eye with a disability, I constantly strive to shatter those stereotypes.
0: Sophie Morgan is a former reality TV contestant. She competed with seven other disabled women on Britain's Missing Top Model. She's been a TV presenter for the BBC and was a lead presenter for Channel 4's coverage of the 2012 and 2016 Summer Paralympics. Sophie also works with a number of different charity organizations, including Scope and Human Rights Watch. And she has designed a wheelchair for fashion display mannequins to help retailers more accurately represent people with disabilities. I've got links in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast. I told you Sophie's story backwards, with her modeling and TV success first. And I did that to get you to think about her in a certain way. To recall examples of models and hosts on TV who you've encountered in the past. I left out information about Sophie's disability on purpose to demonstrate how we make quick judgments when faced with uncertainty or incomplete information. Let me demonstrate this tendency from a different angle. We gave the following description to several people. Okay, so I'm gonna describe someone and I want you to tell me what this person likely does for a living. William is a fan of the opera He enjoys going to art museums when he goes on vacation, and he enjoys playing chess with his friends. So which is more likely? A, William is a professional violinist for a major symphony orchestra, or B, William is a farmer? (laughs) I'm going to go with the obvious one, that he's a violinist. Uh, William's probably a professional violinist.
2: Uh, Okay, I'm going to go with the violinist. Seems the obvious choice, I know, but hey. A.
0: And why do you think A? A.
2: I think that those hobbies would all be more commonly enjoyed by people who are professional musicians.
0: Most of the people we spoke to chose the first option, that William was a violinist, because the description matches the stereotype we hold about classical musicians. But in reality, the likelihood of William being a farmer is far higher, because farmers make up much larger proportions of the population than professional violinists in major symphony orchestras. This error is called base rate neglect, and it's due to something called the representativeness heuristic. Basically, it's a mental shortcut or rule of thumb to help you categorize things in a complex world. A stereotype is a prime example of the representativeness heuristic. When you heard about Sophie Morgan's experience in a reality TV modeling competition, your brain called up an idea that she was representative of models, and that idea probably didn't include a wheelchair. Here's another example of the power of stereotypes. So uh, Amy is 29 years old. She's single, she's outspoken, she's very bright. When she was a student, she majored in English literature and she was deeply interested in the theater. So which is more probable, that Amy is A, a bank teller, or B, Amy is a bank teller and she writes an arts review for her local newspaper. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go with B.
0: I guess B. B, she's a bank teller and writes an arts review.
1: Oh, let's say the
0: second one. I hope she's, you know, pursuing writing, if that's what she's studied, right? Again, almost everyone we spoke to figured the second description was more likely. Even though whenever you add another category, in this case, the category of newspaper columnist, the likelihood of someone belonging to both categories is always less than belonging to just one. This example is actually quite famous, though the woman in the original story was named Linda, not Amy. It was used by Amos Tversky and economics Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman in a study they ran about 40 years ago to illustrate what they called the conjunction fallacy. In short, even when adding more features to an outcome makes it less probable, if those details match our stereotypes, we tend to falsely infer that the outcome's probability has increased. We rely heavily on stereotyping as a shortcut, And while shortcuts can come in handy, they can also lead us to make some major logical and ethical mistakes. I've invited two of my collaborators to chat with me on today's show, as both have looked at stereotypes and the representativeness heuristic in their research. First, Madhupe Akinola, who's an associate professor at Columbia Business School.
2: So Madhupe, let's start at the beginning. What is a stereotype? So a stereotype is a snap judgment that we make about a person or about a thing that can influence our decision making. Every day we get Millions and millions and millions of bits of information in our heads that associate good and bad with certain people or groups or things, and any time we then see those people or those groups or those things, that association that has been fed to us comes immediately to our mind. It is a quick heuristic or a snap-judgment decision-making process that we engage in, that everyone engages in. Why do you think we do this? We do this because we are processing so much information all the time. So we need these mental shortcuts to allow us to navigate the world. If not, we'd be just going through so much information that we get all the time and wouldn't be able to function, quite frankly. So we have to, to make life easier and to simplify. But again, um, any type of shortcut can have its pros and also its cons. What are some of your favorite studies about stereotyping or the representativeness heuristic? So my favorite studies in the domain of stereotyping are what we refer to as audit studies, which are studies where you go into the real world and you observe real-world behavior. The classic study of uh, that Sendel Mullenathan and his colleagues ran, they looked at ads in the newspaper— which were advertising for jobs, entry-level types of positions. And what they did was they sent resumes of candidates to these uh, job ads. And all they did in these resumes, which were identical, was change the name on the resume to Signal Race. So... Lakeisha and Jamal were examples of black-sounding names that were tested and pre-tested to ensure that they would signal race versus a name like uh, Catherine or something like that, which would be a more white-sounding name. So they responded to these ads, sent those resumes in, and all they did was wait to see who called back which candidates. And they found that The Lakeishas and Jamals received fewer callbacks or calls to actually go interview than the white-sounding names. And again, it's attributed to stereotypes, the idea that we make presumptions and snap snap judgments about who might be more qualified for a job, who might do well in a job, even in the context of identical information. And so that's one of the most powerful audit studies out there. Have you ever experienced— Stereotyping personally? One of my favorite personal experiences with stereotyping as an African-American professor was in the early days of my teaching. I'd often find myself setting up to teach a class, and somebody, usually a prospective student, would come in and say, oh, I'd like to sit in on this class and learn more about this class. Where's the professor? Yes, they would say that to me as I'm setting up looking like the professor on the, you know, computer getting everything ready. And uh, that for me was a perfect example of how stereotypes can play a role. So ageism and racism all all wrapped up into one. Exactly. So I look young. So yes, that's one of the reasons why they might ask. But I also am African-American. And if you ask most people how many African-American professors have you had, most would say, zero or one. And then you ask them, how many African-American female professors have you had? And they would certainly say zero. Uh, Maybe some would say one. So all of these stereotypes, the idea of what a professor looks like, an older white man with gray hair, is one of the factors that might make somebody come in asking if the person at the podium preparing for work uh, wearing a suit would be the professor or asking whether the professor is on their way or who the professor is. So um, that is, I feel like, a classic example of the many types of stereotypes that can be in our heads and can influence our behavior and our questions and how we approach life.
0: I'm sure that those students were mortified when they learned that you were the professor.
2: I hope they were. (laughs) <laughs> okay. But you know what? To me, that's I love those moments in some ways because one of the ways in which you change people's stereotypes is by having counter stereotypical exemplars. So let's talk, let's talk more about that. So I I love that,
0: and I think that's a great way to use that story is to to talk about how it also suggests a solution to this problem. So how can we combat? Stereotypes. How can we try to reduce the harm that they cause?
2: So I think one of the ways we can reduce the harm of stereotypes is just being aware. So we can change our behavior when we're more aware um, that our behavior is being influenced by stereotypes and other factors. The other way is also by being exposed to counter-stereotypical exemplars. What do I mean? I am a counter-stereotypical exemplar being an African-American female professor. So that student's mere exposure to me means that the next time they go into another classroom with a person setting up who might be an African-American woman or might defy the stereotype of what a professor looks like, then they won't automatically say, where's the professor? So um, one of the things I often tell my students is that they have a beautiful opportunity to be the walking and living and breathing counter-stereotypical exemplars in their work environments. I ask my students to think about the stereotypes that exist about them, the stereotypes that exist about people around them, the stereotypes that exist about people on their teams, And to realize that every day they have the opportunity to defy those stereotypes and to take that role very seriously because everything or many things that they're doing mean that the next person that looks like them or has that background or whatever it is that comes in is in a different place, an even more advantaged place, because they have defied the stereotype that exists about that category.
0: I love that example. It's so powerful. Thank you so much, Madhupe. This was really amazing. Thanks for joining. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Madupe Akinola is an associate professor of leadership and ethics at Columbia Business School. Dolly Chug is someone both Madupe and I have collaborated with, and she's joined me on Choiceology before. I've asked Dolly back on the show today to help us understand how researchers identify and measure the impact of stereotypes on our decisions. Sally, what does current research tell us about the cause and function of stereotypes?
3: Yeah, the most interesting in re- research on stereotypes is actually come out of uh, the growing ability of social psychologists to distinguish the types of stereotypes that we all hold. We have a far more nuanced understanding of how the mind works than we used to. Uh, what we now know is that. percent of our mental functioning appears to be happening outside of our conscious awareness, give or take. If some of your listeners listen to your podcast while driving home from a busy day at work, sometimes we walk in the door after that drive and we can't remember whether we had green lights or red lights on the way home because we were really busy processing the busy day and listening to Choiceology and, and just didn't, need to pay attention to the red lights and green lines. We were able to take care of all that work on autopilot. Stereotypes are part of that autopilot. They're part of what allows us to organize the world around us into categories and, and, and not have to process every little thing individually. Um, but we can imagine ways in which that also, sometimes we over-categorize and over-generalize. The most exciting work now is that we can measure the stereotypes that are happening both in our conscious and unconscious mind, or sometimes it's referred to as implicit versus explicit stereotypes. And the advances social psychologists have made is that we now can measure those, not perfectly, but we have decent measures. Uh, One is called the Implicit Association Test, or the IAT, where we can measure Things that people may not consciously endorse or believe, they may not consciously endorse or believe this is true about this group of people, but they still, on an unconscious level, have that stereotype sitting in their minds.
0: So, Dolly, how does the implicit association test work, and what have these tests shown? I should Uh, Explain that there are different IATs
3: on different topics, so people can choose which ones they want to do. A race, or a gender, or a religion, or there's even a Coke Pepsi IAT, or an Apple PC IAT. People sit down at a computer, play something that feels like a video game. It's like fast and kind of millisecond level response times, or like 500 milliseconds, which is about half a second. And what the IAT researchers have found based off of, I think the latest count was over 20 million IATs have been taken on the the free anonymous website that they have set up, is that pretty much everyone seems to have some unconscious stereotype that is not necessarily aligned with their conscious stereotypes. Men and women all tend to show, on average, implicit biases and stereotypes where they associate men with leadership, with science, with the workplace, and women less so with leadership, less so with science, more with humanities, and more with family than the workplace. What's particularly interesting is that uh, on the implicit level, women on average show that implicit stereotype even more than men. But on an explicit level, women show it less than men. So it's a good example of where we see a divergence between the implicit and explicit and where we see just because you're a member of a group doesn't mean you're immune from the implicit stereotypes that, that we're sort of
0: breathing in from the world around us. Dolly, how would you think about countering implicit or explicit stereotypes? So so
3: here's the good news and the bad news
0: about implicit
3: stereotypes and biases and attitudes. We haven't yet figured out a magic bullet to how to just change the ones you don't like. You know, we haven't we haven't found the vaccine for that yet. So on the one hand, that might sound discouraging, but on the other hand, we do know that there's all sorts of ways using context system and processes to ensure that those unconscious biases that we feel are messing with our business strategy don't actually get in the way. So, for example, if you're worried that you're not getting enough input from certain groups because you you know that your unconscious stereotypes about that particular group, that function is, is, is negative, there's ways in which you would, rather than uh, expecting them to, on their own, have their input rise to the top in a conversation, what if you were to have everyone generate ideas but have it be blocked. So you don't know that idea came from manufacturing or from marketing or whichever group you're worried you're not giving full input to. And so, in other words, using a system like that, organizations are blinding resumes, making it in the hiring process that until you actually interview the person, you don't see the name on the resume. These are all systems that allow us to take unconscious bias off the table as long as possible in our judgment processes.
0: Dolly, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Dolly Chug is an associate professor of management and organizations at New York University's Stern School of Business and the author of the book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. I've got links to her book and also to the free implicit association test she mentioned in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast. Just as we stereotype people, we also stereotype investment opportunities. We might mistakenly assume all investments, say, in a certain asset class, must have comparable risk profiles, or that all tech companies will have similar returns after an IPO. That's one reason Schwab also produces the podcast Financial Decoder, which is specifically designed for people who want to make better financial decisions. Host Mark Reapy and his guests dissect the financial choices you might be facing and offer tips to mitigate the impact of biases on your financial life. You can find it at schwab.com financialdecoder financial decoder or wherever you listen to podcasts. We've spent most of this episode talking about stereotypes as they relate to people or groups of people. But the representativeness heuristic applies to things just as well. We also stereotype objects, companies, regions of the world, and even seasons— For instance, we might assume that the weather is gonna be a lot warmer in April than in March. And while that's true on average, there's not much difference between March 31st and April 1st, but we expect there will be. As Madhupe Akinola mentioned, counter-stereotypical exemplars are helpful. Seek out exceptions to the rule and you can make more balanced decisions. And Dolly Chug's idea of blinding yourself to the information that might bias you, like the name or age of a job applicant, or the price of a wine, or the brand of a t-shirt, can sometimes help you make better decisions. For instance, you could look at the ratings for a list of microwaves, but hide the brand names, and you might make better judgments about each product's value. Sometimes it takes more effort. But of course, judging a book by its cover means you can miss valuable information. To Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. If you've enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, you can subscribe for free. Same goes for other podcasting apps. Subscribe and you won't miss an episode. Next time on the show, we'll look at how over optimism and oversimplification can wreak havoc on your plans and your budgets. I'm Katie Milkman. Talk to you next time. For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash podcast.